His faithfulness is great, and we rejoice in the promises of God. If you have a prayer slip or visitor slip, if you'd pass that to the center aisle, we'd love to collect those. And let's open our Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Every believer has questions about how to live the Christian life, don't we? How do we do this? Uh, What's the right decision concerning um, this matter? Should I make this commitment or not make this commitment? Uh, We want to know how to apply God's truth uh, to the details and decisions that we face. The sincere follower of Jesus Christ wants to obey the instruction of the Apostle Paul where he says in Ephesians 5.17, Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. So it's not surprising that there's a whole genre of podcasts that have come on the scene that are about answering uh, questions that believers have. Uh, And while the method of communication is new uh, and it's at our fingertips, answering questions about the Christian life is not new. In fact, if you read the New Testament, you see where, where churches submitted questions to, in this case, the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 7. Paul is responding to the questions of the Corinthians um, who had difficulty or were struggling with a number of issues um, such as personal purity, marriage, singleness, and the whole issue of temptation. Maybe some of the uh, scripture reading this morning kind of arrested you with, what does he mean by that? So you probably have questions coming into this text. Um, In Acts 18, it records Paul's ministry in Corinth as he begins sowing the word. He showed up in the synagogues. He began to to preach in the synagogues uh, on on the Sabbath. But the Jews turned against him, and so he set his attention to, to focus on the Gentiles. And he sowed the gospel in Corinth, and a church was started. But Corinth was a difficult place to minister the word. It was difficult. In fact, we know that Paul dealt with a fear. So great was his fear that the living resurrected Christ appeared to Paul in Acts 18 and said to him, do not be afraid. Keep on preaching. I have many people in this city. What an encouragement to preachers then and now that God has a people And that our responsibility as Christians is to sow the word of God even into situations that look hopeless or too far gone. That was Corinth in many respects. Jesus said to Paul, do not be afraid. Go on speaking. Do not be silent. For I am with you. No man will attack you. So in piecing together 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, there are at least four letters to the Corinthians. Two are in the New Testament. And as we pick up in 1 Corinthians 7, he says in verse 1, Now concerning the matters about which you wrote. Well, that was the first letter that the Corinthians um, submitted to him. And he is responding to it. Um, And so this would be the beginning of a chapter committed to answering questions about marriage, about singleness, about temptation, about uh, about divorce, about uh, widowhood, all of it's in chapter 7 in these 40 verses as he's responding to these questions. So our message this morning will be focused on how to live a life of purity and contentment in a world that promotes the opposite. So as you think about the relationships of your life, 
God's desire for you, believer, is that you would be content and faithful in the relationships that you're in, that you would honor the Lord in them all. Now, as a church, we have gone on record, we're going to honor marriage. We're going to stand on God's truth with regard to marriage, how it's defined, how we celebrate marriages as a church. We're going to honor God in marriage by the keeping of our marriage vows. Um, marriage would be the building block and foundation of human flourishing. It, it was established before government. It was established before the church. God established the ordinance of marriage. And he did so in the garden in, G- in Genesis chapter 2. It is not good for a man to be alone. And God brought Adam and Eve together and here we go. Marriage is a one man and one woman until death do you part. And we, we, we live at a time of radical redefinitions and a, 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 just a free-for-all and what it means. But that established in creation is the foundation we look to and what we're called to honor as believers. So there's a spirit of the age that applies to anything aberrant. And it's basically, uh, why can't you just let people do what they want to do? Why, why, why do you Christians always have to be speaking and putting your nose in other people's business? Well, I, you know, I'm, we're, we're not the least bit interested in putting our nose in other people's business. But we are interested in putting our hearts in other people's problems and to stand upon the truth because the truth matters and when you have marriage erode and crumble doesn't it affect everybody it affects everybody we're facing problems today just a perusal of youtube and you'll see them how would you like to be a policeman in today's culture sir i need your license I need your proof of insurance and your registration. What did I do wrong? And here's a 20-minute conflict that ends in a taser and arrest and so many other things. You see a generation where people never never learn how to respond to, no, you can't do that. What do you mean? Who are you to tell me I can't do that? Where is that to be learned? In the confines of a home. In the confines of a family. Well, we'll pass it on to the state. They can do it. The state does a lousy job with that. We see it. We see the fruit of it all around us. The exhaustion, the frustration. And so we, we, we want to honor marriage. Not only for human flourishing, as God has said, this is good. This is very good. This is good that, that, that man and woman come together and be fruitful and multiply and enjoy the blessings that I give. Divorce is a tragic severance. We live in a divorce culture. It's a tragic severance of that covenant bond. We know it's not the unpardonable sin, but let's just call it what God uh, says about it. And he hates it because of the collateral damage that it brings. God hates divorce. And yet Jesus taught that because of the hardness of your heart, Moses gave her provision for that. And we know that there are two grounds for divorce, adultery, unrepentant shattering of the marriage covenant and we find one here in 1 Corinthians 7 with uh, with desertion when an unbeliever leaves um, Paul says the believers to be at peace under the circumstances certainly there are considerations with regard to abuse and so forth that's a longer discussion but all of these matters affect us as we think about family, as we think about singleness, as we think about the decisions of our life. So let's dig into this text. Let's soak in it for a little while. And let's begin with this. I want to 
hang my thoughts on four points. The first would be one of the biggest decisions in your life. Secondly, marriage is a protection, a provision, and a priority. Thirdly, leveraging your singleness. If you're single, leveraging your singleness for kingdom service. And then fourthly, learning contentment in Christ wherever you are. So let's begin first with one of the biggest decisions in your life. Oh, wow, what could that possibly be? Well, certainly we know the greatest would be for you to receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, to repent of your sins and to say, Lord, I'm going to follow you. I believe the testimony of what Scripture says about who you are. I believe your death on the cross is what my soul needs most. And I receive that you are living. You came back from the dead and you're my only Savior. Come into my life. Forgive me of my sins and I will walk with you. And so, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> one of the greatest uh, or one of the biggest decisions following that is how you're going to live your life specifically with regard to personal purity. And immediately the mention of that causes us to, many of us to look at our feet. We don't want to talk about that. <laughs> Come on, we're, it's Sunday. <laughs> we're at church. Why, why are we talking about this? Well, because it's such a pressing matter. The Apostle Paul would give a huge chunk of this letter to this subject, to the church. This letter was read to the church. Your personal purity is a sign of who you're living for. And I think many Christians, um, maybe not being taught or just in rebellion, ignore what God has said. The Corinthian congregation was plagued by a number of problems. They were, div they were uh, in division. There was division among them. They, they were selfish. They were prideful. Um, which led to an awful witness in the city when you're suing one another in open court in Corinth. That's not a good witness for the gospel. Um, and they were, there, there was sexual compromise. So as followers of Jesus Christ, we're called to be holy and pure. The Bible says as God's people, we're to be holy as he's holy. Not self-righteous, but holy. A pursuit of a distinction uh, uh, that is, is part of, uh, of what holiness communicates. A part of understanding holiness is that it's a strangeness. It's strange in the sense that it's different than the flow. God said of Israel, you will be my peculiar people. You will follow me in obedience by faith. And so there is a particular... Um, a peculiar tone to the, the song of your life. You are not one who goes with the flow. You're set apart for God's purposes. And your heart says, Lord, I want to honor you in everything that I do. Uh, holiness is a strangeness in the world. But often we find ourselves, I want to fit in. I don't want to stand out. I, I want to go with the flow. And I think that at the heart of it, when we gather for worship, is to say, who am I really serving? Who am I really living for? We're strange because we've been made special by God. We march to the orders of our king and not to the agenda of this world. And this is at the heart of true worship. And so when Paul is talking about some of their questions and dealing with the problems in the church, I want you to consider with me 1 Corinthians 5 through 7. Because in chapter 5, he's dealing with a moral problem that underscores their arrogance. Namely, that they have someone, verse 1 tells us, it is reported that there is sexual immorality among you. And that word is pornea. It speaks to a general, it's the general term used in the New Testament to speak of all sexual sin outside of, uh, of marriage. And 
that it's among you. What do you mean among you? It's in the church and everybody knows about it. Well, how many people know about it? Well, it's of the kind of sexual immorality that's not even tolerated among the pagans. That's an outrage. Even the, even the culture's looking and say, you people are messed up. Well, what's the deal? Well, it says that a man has his father's wife, so it's an incestuous relationship. And it's a scandal. And he rebukes them and he says, why have you allowed this to happen? Now, I want you to note in this passage, he doesn't mention a pastor. He doesn't mention an elder. He doesn't call the deacons on the carpet, although they should, all, all of them should be held accountable for it. He's furious with the church for allowing that to happen. So I think sometimes Christian convictions wrongly are understood in the church of, well, that's what the pastor believes, that's what the elders say, that's what they think. No, there ought to be a sense where I'm a child of God and I need to line up my life with what God's word says and stop giving a miswitness and take some courage for some conviction. This was an outrage, he called him out on it. He says in verses 9 and 10, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Well, good night, Paul. We live in Corinth. How do we do that? Well, he clarifies in verse 10, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of the world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters since then you would need to go out of the world. He's talking about those that you're allowing to function just fine in the body of Christ. And they should be disciplined. They should be called to repent. And you've said nothing. It's crickets. Turn the page maybe to chapter 6. Verses 9 through 11 we've looked at many times. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? And then he goes in to describe what that means. He's describing a pattern of life that does not show repentance or allegiance to Jesus Christ. It's not whether you've ever committed one of these sins or not. The issue is, are you living this way, unrepentant, ongoingly, with no concern for your soul? He says, don't be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, and then he lists a cluster of sins, will inherit the kingdom of God. So personal purity, one of the reasons I would argue is one of the biggest decisions you'll make is because if your life is characterized by that, you have every reason to question that Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior. You will not inherit the kingdom of God. And if you would excuse this analogy once again, it doesn't mean you're going to get a smaller piece of the pie. Friend, you don't get any piece of the pie. You're lost. And this is the battle we all face. Is there any hope? <laughs> yes, the gospel. He says in verse 11, such were some of you, but you were washed. So he's looking at the Corinthians and he's saying, I'm looking at a congregation, and in this case, he's reading their letter and thinking of the congregation because he had been there. And he's seeing where, you know, this was the mark of their former life, but you've been, you've been washed, you've, you've been changed, you've been re, uh, sanctified, justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Old things have passed away, behold, all things become new. Isn't that our hope? So I realize that this subject matter today may be weighing heavy on some in this room. There's new beginnings today, friends. This message is preached with hope. Our hope is in the Lord. But 
But let us not ignore what he's commanded of us. Look at chapter 6, verse 13. He says in the last part of verse 13, the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and and the Lord for the body. Now, I'm going to give you a detailed rundown of what sexual immorality means in just a moment from a biblical survey. But the body's not meant for that. And it's linked to the resurrection. God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. And greater is he that is in you than he that is in this world. So marriage is a one flesh union. Look at chapter 6, verse 16. The two will become one flesh. And he distinguishes and makes it just a really a crushing evaluation. He says in verse 18, flee from sexual immorality. What does that mean? Run. That's what it means. Run. Flee it. Sexual sin is particularly devastating. Every other sin, he writes, every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. And then he says in closing out the chapter, your body's a temple of the Holy Spirit within you. You're not your own. You've been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God with your bodies. John Stott said, the reason why Christians should dislike vulgarity is not because we have a warped view of sex, but because we have a high and holy view of it as being in its right place as God's good, God's good gift. I would remind you, if you were here, <laughs> when we did the series on the Song of Solomon, how many were here? Okay. I read the entire book of the Song of Solomon into the corporate record of worship of First Baptist Church Gonzales. And there was some cringing. There was some looking at the bulletin. I've never seen people more studious in the Bible when we were reading through Song of Solomon. Why did I do that? I want to go on record that we're not talking about some prudish, prudish view of, of, of sexual relations. God has given that as a gift to be expressed in marriage. You get outside the boundaries just like a fireplace in your living room. You want the coals to stay in the fireplace. You don't want it spilling out into the living room. And so it is with, so it is with sexual relations it's a gift given in marriage. Now, let's move secondly to marriage, a protection, a provision, and a priority. And we'll expand this um, to cover some more verses in 1 Corinthians 16, or 1 Corinthians 7. And in first century Corinth, marriage was a huge, huge problem, just like today. Marriage was in tatters. Rampant divorce, delay in marriage, cohabitation. It was a pornographic culture then and now. The Corinthians worshipped many gods and goddesses. The most famous was Aphrodite, and who was the goddess of love, and thousands of prostitutes served in her temple by day, swarming into the streets at night. It was a cesspool. In fact, there was even a phrase coined in the Roman Empire to Corinthianize meaning to practice sexual immorality. It just, they just linked it to the city. It was the big easy of the first century. The Corinthians had, Paul, uh, had sent Paul some questions. And we know that in verse one, as again, now concerning the matters which you wrote. And then he says, it, it's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. What does that mean? What does that mean, Paul? Is that somehow unholy for that to happen? That's been the view of many through history. That's not what he's saying at all. 
I believe this is a euphemism for sexual immorality, a Jewish euphemism, not to touch in a sexually inappropriate way leading to sexual immorality. There's a distance to keep, is what he's saying. Celibacy is good. He says that, if you're called to that. But most aren't, are we? No. The usual pattern is marriage, and marriage is a protection. In what way? Well, in verse 2, but because of temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. Marriage is a protection against sexual immorality. Oh, it's much more than that. But it is that. It, it is a wall of protection. Now, we know that adultery exists. We read of that in the Ten Commandments. You shall not commit adultery. That means shattering of your marriage vows by being unfaithful with another. Fornication is being involved in sexual relations um, before, uh, before marriage. Adultery is to shatter that, that bond and covenant while married. Because of temptation, marriage is a wall of protection, and marriage was, was not meant to be an arrangement that's easy to get out of. It's intended to carry weight. It's not a loose understanding. Consider the vows at a, at a wedding. Maybe you would remember your own. In sickness and in health, in riches and in poverty, in good times and in bad, your commitment to your wife, your commitment to your husband keeps you from being blown away. And you come back in the course of a marriage time and time again, saying to her, to him, I will be faithful as long as I draw breath in this world. I'm not going anywhere. faithful to these vows. And we don't have to look far to see the pain and the shame of sexual sins. I was reminded of the Les Miserables and that song, I Dreamed a Dream, which Fantine sings, and she's living in the backwash of just bad decisions and horrible circumstances. And there's one line in that song written by Claude Michel Schoenberg, where she sings, he slept a summer by my side. He filled my days with endless wonder. He took my childhood in his stride, but he was gone when autumn came. And you see the backwash of bad decisions. Marriage is God's place for sexual expression. That's what he's talking about in verses two through five. And um, in this section, um, he, he speaks to a, a number of things um, that I, I want to bring to your attention. In verses two through five, he says, um, but because of temptation to sexual immorality, each man is to have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife and the wife should give to her husband. And for the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. So in marriage, the commitment is tremendous. It's total commitment under the Lord. And you're to come together. That's a good thing. 
That's where it should, that's where coming together should take place. There's no shame in it. But you step outside that provision and you open yourself up to a world of hurt. So in this protection of marriage, let me just give you a survey and I'll do it quickly and I won't break your back with this, but I want you to just hear the prohibitions, the sexual prohibitions given in the Bible. No sex outside of marriage. No sexual worship, which is what the pagans did. No sexual prostitution. No homosexual activity. Animals are out of the question. No sexual lust. No sexual immodesty, provoking wrong sexual desires. No sexual allurement, including inappropriate emotional attachments. No secret internet relationships would be a good application. No sexual looking. No entertaining ourselves with or joking around about sex outside of marriage. I could list scripture after scripture that give those boundaries. And how should we hear that? Oh man, that's a bummer. No, we should hear that as that's life-giving. I need to embrace this by faith. I need to walk in obedience. I need to guard my, my mind, guard my heart. It was a time when kings went out to war and David, he hung around the palace. One thing led to another and he lost so much, didn't he? Do you think those stories are written in the Bible just to entertain us? They're written to warn us. To warn us. David Platt, years ago we were traveling and um, we stopped in Birmingham when he was pastor there in Birmingham and uh, just really appreciated his message on this subject. And he gives some practical uh, questions. He gives some guidelines. How far is too far between a single man and a single woman? And he, he mentions three God-ordained categories. He, he mentions the neighbor relationship and sexual, uh, sexual activity is prohibited in neighbor relationships, isn't it? He mentions family relationships. Sexual activity is prohibited in that way. And those relationships. And then he mentions the marriage relationship. Sexual activity is commanded, which is what 1 Corinthians 7 is saying, that husband and wife are to come together as a part of the consummation of their marriage. There's only one God-glorifying conclusion as you look at the relationships of your life, regardless of whether you're single or married, flee any and all sexual activity outside of marriage. Flee it. May this word sink into your conscience to be an, a, a, a sound for you, a, an alarm for you. Michael Ferris, two quotes from him that have just been tremendous in my life. He, he wrote, the vast majority of parents want their children to abstain from sexual relationships until marriage. That's a good goal, since it's biblical. However, we, we fail to see that abstinence should include emotional abstinence as well. In other words, um, if we permit our children to develop boyfriend-girlfriend relationships before they're ready to get married, we're simply asking for sexual temptation and in many cases, sexual trouble. He goes on to say, I was involved in a number of emotional relationships and these emotional attachments created a certain level of physical involvement. I drew a line which kept me from total physical involvement, yet in my spirit I knew that I was violating God's standards for purity. 
of purity. I used to think that the answer was to draw a more righteous physical line, but now I understand that I should have, uh, I should have drawn the line at the level of any emotional involvement with a girlfriend before I was ready to really start seriously looking for a wife. Crossing that emotional line made it virtually impossible to stay on the right side of the physical line. These are seasoned words of wisdom. Not very popular. I didn't hear many amens. But that's okay. Let, let me just finish this point with a gospel exhortation. That with regard to sexual sin, the call for you and for me is to repent. To run from to flee all sexual activity outside of marriage, to rejoice in and run to sexual activity in marriage, and to receive today the forgiveness and freedom and hope and salvation found in Jesus Christ, which can give you a new beginning today. You know what's amazing when you survey the gospel, and I'll close with an example if I can remember, <laughs> is how many times Jesus came alongside and restored somebody whose life was a sexual wreck. You know what he said to them? Go and sin no more. You know what he's saying today? The same thing. Come to me. All you who are weary and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. I'll give you a new beginning. Isn't that, is that not the Christian life? At every point of failure, whether it's sexual failure or some other failure, we need the grace of God in our life. We have not gathered here today once again because we've got it all together. We've gathered here today because we need a great Savior, and his name is Jesus. Let's move secondly. Marriage is a provision, a giving of oneself, abstinence. Um, in marriage, he, he mentioned something, maybe it struck you, uh, that, that there should be a giving of yourself in marriage. But there, he mentions this abstinence um, by mutual consent of fasting from marital intimacy for the purpose of seeking the Lord for a brief period of time, but you need to come back together again. And then thirdly, the priority of marriage, of all the commitments, of all the relationships, of all the ministries you can be a part of, marriage should be the priority you know, it, it, it's a part of the resume of those who would serve as a pastor in First Timothy 3 and therefore should be a part of every Christian life that your marriage is critical. Walk together in the grace of life, Peter wrote in First Peter 3, because you're heirs of the grace of life so that your prayers may not be hindered. Let's move on to singleness. And that's a large part of this seventh chapter, leveraging your singleness for kingdom service. The Apostle Paul is emphasizing contentment with your situation in life. He's single. He's not married. Now, there's been some speculation on that. In order to be a voting member of the Sanhedrin, of which he was, you had to be married. So many have speculated either his wife died or he was divorced. But when he was fulfilling his ministry as an apostle, he was single. And verses 7 and 8, I wish that you, that all were as I myself am. He's saying, I wish you were all single like I am. <laughs> but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. 
So the demands of marriage are so high, and this is what's behind what he's saying, uh, the, the demands of marriage are high that why the wife doesn't have authority over her own body, neither does the husband. They're committed to one another. In verse 8, he mentions the, formal, uh, the unmarried and the widow. So he, I think that's referring to two different situations, singleness by divorce and singleness by death. He says if they don't have self-control, it's better to marry than to burn, not in hell, but with passion. So marriage is a provision in that sense. So my singleness is not a curse, Paul says, but an opportunity. And it's come to my attention, most are married, adults in this congregation are married, most are. So I, I, I really find an application here, some aren't. And your role in this body is vital. And you're not a second-class citizen because you're not married. The Apostle Paul wasn't married. And he said to the Corinthians, I wish you were like me. Why? So you could have more freedom to be able to serve the Lord. Because marriage carries with it a commitment. So how do I leverage my singleness for service in Christ? My singleness is not a curse, but an opportunity. It gives to you a greater focus on the Lord. Look at verse 32. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. That's a way to leverage your singleness is to seek opportunities for greater service in the kingdom of God. Singleness is always better than the following. It's better than marrying an unbeliever. Well, nobody's available. I just, she looks nice. That's, I think that's really how people make decisions, which is brainless. We have something to consider as believers. We're not to be unequally yoked with unbelievers. What fellowship does light have with darkness? And, and there needs to be some discernment on that as well. Like, well, he said he believed in God. Oh, there's a whole lot more you need to consider than that. We were at Taco Bell and he said he believed in God and so I thought it'd be a good idea to get married. We know that it's not right. Singleness is certainly better than marrying an unbeliever or to marry someone who will hinder your spiritual devotion to Christ. You don't want, ladies, you don't want to marry a man that you've got to kickstart spiritually just to get going. All right, get out of bed. It's Sunday. You said you were a Christian. What's happened? I'll change him. No, you won't. And vice versa, young man. Where is, this, where is the young woman's heart? Does she love the Lord? Does she exhibit the fruit of the Spirit in her life? Does she have devotion for Christ? That's what you can build on. That's a common ground. To marry for the wrong motivations, that's another reason singleness is, is greater. I'm discontent. I don't like my circumstance in life. Maybe marriage will turn the leaf. I'm unhappy with my present circumstances. Or even worse, maybe it's an idolatrous relationship and you just give all your heart and devotion to this person that rightly needs to be given to Christ alone. To marry without being willing to give yourself freely, that's another reason to be single. It, it can be said that singleness, because really there aren't other people to care for, 
uh, uh, but yourself. It can breed a selfishness that you need to just identify. Am I ready to give myself freely? Am I ready to have my routines disrupted by marriage? Am I ready to share the bathroom with someone else and a host of other things? So that leads us to number four, and we'll close with this. Learning contentment in Christ. In a culture that really screams for relational connections, learn to be content in Christ. Look at verse 17. Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. Rivet your eyes and thoughts on that. What is God calling me to do? If he's calling me to do it, he will certainly provide. And I want to walk by faith and to trust him. But I want to grow in contentment. Look at verse 24. So brothers, in whatever condition, whether you're married or single, whether you um, are widowed or unmarried, whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. A contentment in the Lord. Godliness with contentment is great gain. I found a golden nugget from a Puritan writer, Jeremiah Burroughs, the rare jewel of Christian contentment. Many in our body have read that with great profit. And and contentment gives understanding of how contentment is the opposite of internal striving and envy. Burroughs defines contentment as the inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit, freely submitting to and taking pleasure in God's disposal in every condition. Burroughs explains that this takes heart work within the soul, a quieting of the heart, submission which is sending the soul under God in a gracious frame and covering. When we see things clearly and honestly, we are aware of our weaknesses and failures. And this should drive us to Jesus Christ. Whether it's sexual sin or some other sin, it only emphasizes, it only highlights how badly we need a savior. So bring to him your failure. Bring to him your crushing defeats. He's a champion, a resurrected champion who can take your life and make it into something beautiful for his glory. I mentioned an episode in the life of Jesus. I'll close with it. It's Luke 7. And this woman comes as Jesus is with religious movers and shakers and he's having dinner with them. And this woman comes in. I'm in Luke 7, 38. And standing behind him at his feet weeping, she began to to wet his feet with her tears and wipe them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. What do you think's going on there? This is a woman shattered by her sexual sin. And the Pharisees condemned her for it. If Jesus was a prophet, he would know who's doing this to him. And Jesus answered them and he tells them a story but, uh, of, of great debt. And then I want to come to the closing verses here in verse 46. You did not anoint my head with oil. But she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Not because she wept and wiped his feet with her hair. The text tells us that, that, that your faith has saved you. 
Go in peace. Go in peace. New beginnings in the grace of God. And so we extend that invitation in the gospel to come and be a part of the rest of the sinners who gather here by the grace of God. That's what it means to be a Christian and that's what it means to be the church. Let's follow him. Would you bow with me in prayer? Father, I pray for uh, the message of this morning that it would give hope and help, that it would put necessary boundaries in our life and that we would be surrendered to you. Help us to run from sin as we're commanded in scripture to do that and to put on the Lord Jesus Christ to walk in the newness of life as we are called. Lead us now in these closing moments to honor you in faith, surrender, obedience, For the glory of your name we pray, amen. Let's stand together as we sing.